I know, like me, uh, many of the rest of you have also served in the military. Uh, others have worked for various government agencies. You know, the governments really, really love to create and enforce laws. Laws that govern every aspect of our lives. Then, just to be sure, we create thousands and thousands more regulations on top of the laws to help explain to us what the laws really mean. Those of you who haven't worked for the government, you've merely had the privilege of living under all these laws and regulations. Um, so you get what it's about anyway. I think it'd be fair to say that we all know it is impossible to follow all the rules all the time. In many cases, some of these laws and regulations contradict each other. So you're darned if you do and darned if you don't sometimes. Other times, there are just so many of them, we can't keep up with them anyway. So we don't even know that we're violating the law sometimes when we do it. Now, some of you may think that all of this is new and unprecedented and only happens to us because we're living in a, a state that loves to create laws and regulations. Uh, but Ecclesiastes 1.9 told us about 2,300 years ago, what has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. So before we talk about this week's passage from Matthew, I want to put it in some perspective. In Jesus' time, the nation of Israel was under the law that was first given to Moses during the time of the exodus out of Egypt, about 12 or 1300 years before Jesus was even born. When God made his covenant with Moses, he first gave him the 10 commandments that we all know and love. But he didn't stop there. In all, he gave Moses a total of 613 commandments for the people of Israel to follow. And no, I didn't count them all out, but I'm assured that that's a correct number. In the next 12 or 1300 years, the Jewish religious leaders added thousands of regulations to clarify the laws. Sound familiar? For example, one of the laws given in Exodus uh, 31:15 is six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. Yikes, as Don would say. So it's all pretty clear anyway though, right? And don't be too quick to answer. What exactly is the meaning of the word work? What's work for me might be recreation for you. Matter of fact, am I violating the Sabbath right now by even talking to you about this? Nah, I don't see any clouds. I think we're okay. The Jewish scholars decided to help everyone out with that question and came up with 39 categories of work with many subcategories under them in order to be very, very specific about what is and what is not work. This was how things stood when Jesus gave this Sermon on the Mount. The religious leaders of the day had so many 
do this and don't do that, that no human being could follow them all. Beyond that, they had also twisted the meaning of the word righteousness. To them, righteousness meant follow every minuscule rule or you will lose God's favor. Remember in John 15, how Jesus healed the man who had been crippled for 38 years at the pool of Bethesda on the Sabbath day? Religious leaders declared that to be a violation of the law. Even worse, Jesus told the man to pick up his bed and walk. What a blatant violation was that? Not only did Jesus violate the law himself, he coerced this poor innocent soul into a life of crime as well. So in that light, let's break down this week's passage from Matthew, verse by verse. Please turn to Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 to 20. Now I like to say that uh, verse 17 is really a verse about Jesus. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Many of you already know this, but what Jesus is referring to as the law is the first five books of the Bible. To the Jews, it's called the Torah. The prophets refers to the rest of what we know as the Old Testament. So what Jesus is talking about here is all of the Holy Scripture that had been written up to that time. So what did Jesus mean when he says that he came to fulfill the Old Testament? Well, a couple of months ago, Pastor Fay gave a good demonstration of the meaning of fulfill uh, with a balloon, if you remember. I won't try to repeat it here because at my age, I might just faint and fall down right here in front of you. And that might be the end of my elder and training career. But anyway, he held up a brand new balloon. And we all agreed it was indeed a balloon. Then he blew it up. After he did, it was still a balloon, but it was also something different now, something better. It was now serving the purpose it had been created for. It was what it was really meant to be. It was fulfilled. I think this is a good analogy for what Jesus did. When he came to us, he taught us, and he died for us. He didn't really change the Old Testament, but he made it better and different for us by making it what it was meant to be. I'll get uh, into this a little bit more later, but please keep that idea in mind. Even today, he is still fulfilling the Old Testament as he sits at the right hand of the Father in heaven until he returns to us one day to make all things right. In verse 18, Jesus is talking about the work of the scribes. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. New American Standard Bible and the New English Translation both say, not the smallest letter or stroke of a letter will pass away. Here, I believe Jesus is giving a lot of credit to the scribes. They were a very dedicated group of men whose lives were dedicated to making exact and perfect copies of Holy Scripture before the days of the printing press. They were responsible for keeping 
every stroke of every letter in the Old Testament exactly right. Their work allowed Jesus to quote passages that were written by Moses and the prophets centuries before he came to earth and to teach from them on the streets and in the synagogues. I believe that even today we have a great debt that we owe to the scribes of the time. Without them and their absolutely meticulous attention to detail, we would not have such an accurate copy of scriptures that were written thousands of years ago. I have no doubt that the scribes were men who were used by God. Now on to verse 19. 19 talks about the Pharisees' jobs. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. I would say that this verse is a compliment to the Pharisees. They were the teachers and enforcers of the religious laws of the time. They had a deep, deep respect for the law of Moses and they wanted to make sure that everyone else did too. Also, Jesus is endorsing the idea that we too should have respect for the commands that God has given us. To disobey God's law or to teach others to disobey him will not end well for us. So back in Jesus' day, the scribes and the Pharisees were pretty well aligned with each other. Like today, district attorneys and the police are generally on the same side. They have different roles to play and different areas of expertise, but they all have the same goal in mind. Proper understanding, application, and adherence to the laws of the land for the good of society. To the Jews of the day, these were the good guys. They were, to most folks, the very epitome, the example of righteousness at the time. They knew scripture and lived according to scripture better than anyone else. Jesus was simply acknowledging that they had gotten an awful lot right. Then verse 20 talks to us. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. What? Is that a contradiction? Didn't I just say that Jesus had some nice things to say about both the scribes and the Pharisees? Before you break out the pitchforks or the rotten tomatoes or whatever you might be concealing under uh, your chairs there, please hear me out on this one. First, the most important point of this. Jesus is not saying that the scribes and the Pharisees had no righteousness. Only that the righteousness they did have was not enough to get them into heaven. They clearly had some good points, but they were just missing something. Second, I want to emphasize that just being a scribe or a Pharisee was not in and of itself a disqualification for getting into heaven. You could very well be a scribe or a Pharisee at the time and still get salvation. So let me go into a little more detail about the scribes. Later in the book of Matthew, in chapter 13, 
Jesus talks about it them himself. First, he tells a whole bunch of parables to the crowd assembled around him. He talks about seeds being sowed in four different kinds of soil. He talks about separating the wheat from the weeds. He talks about mustard seeds. And he talks about the leavening and bread. Then he leaves the crowd and his disciples ask him for an explanation about the parable of the weeds. Not only does Jesus explain that one, he goes on to give them three more parables. The first one is Matthew 13, 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. I want to emphasize here that when he discovers something really valuable, he uh, leaves his old life to move on to invest in his future. Second parable is uh, quite like it. Next two verses, 45 and 46. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Same learning point here. Even when you have something of value in your hand, you give it up for something of far greater value. The third parable Jesus tells his disciples is a little bit different. In verses 47 to 50, he says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus asks his disciples if they understand these parables and they confirm they do. So he moves on to verse 52. Therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is old and what is new. I believe that in all three of these parables, Jesus is telling his disciples something about the scribes because of the flow. First, I think he's telling them that their knowledge of all that we now call the Old Testament is very valuable. Second, he's saying that the scribes can still find something of greater value. And like the balloon analogy, expand on the knowledge they already have. What would be more valuable than a knowledge of all the scripture that was known up to that time? I would say that it was the new knowledge that Jesus was there to teach, to preach. The knowledge of the kingdom of heaven that we now have written down in the New Testament that they didn't have yet. Third, I believe he was teaching that some of the scribes would accept this new knowledge and some would not. Those that did would have the greatest treasure, knowledge of the old and the new and how they come together with Jesus. So now let's talk about the Pharisees. 
the great apostle Paul, a hero of the Christian faith, was actually a Pharisee himself as a younger man. And he was known as Saul. In Acts 23, 6, he quotes, uh, he himself is quoted as saying, brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. He also writes about himself in his letter to the Philippians. He actually brags that he was circumcised on the eighth day, a member of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a prosecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Wow. So what changed? What could cause an absolutely zealous defender of the religious laws of the day who hunted down and persecuted Christians even to the death to become one of the greatest Christians of all time? I think if we get to the bottom of that question, we'll begin to understand Matthew 5.20 better. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. More to the point for us today, how can we exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees and enter heaven ourselves? Now I know that most of you listening today know exactly what happened to Saul, AKA Paul. So I won't draw it out too long, but quite simply, he meets Jesus. After Jesus has been crucified, after he rises from the dead and after he ascends into heaven. It's all laid out in beautiful detail in Acts chapter nine. Saul is out on a Christian hunting expedition to Damascus. Before he gets there, he's blinded by a great light from heaven and falls to the ground. Then he hears a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he asks, who are you, Lord? The answer, I am Jesus, who you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. So at that point, Paul actually starts to follow Jesus. He does what he's told, moves on to Damascus. So then Jesus calls on a man named Ananias one of the Christians living in Damascus, that Saul was there to hunt down. And he tells Ananias to go to Saul. Ananias is at first uh, understandably reluctant to go to the guy who's there to hunt uh, Christians down, and he's pretty famous for it. But Jesus tells him in verse 15, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. This time, Ananias is obedient. He follows Jesus and goes and lays his hands on Saul. Immediately, Saul's vision returns. The Holy Spirit enters him and he's baptized. That's where Saul becomes Paul and dedicates his life to following Jesus. From that point on, until he himself is martyred in Rome years later, Paul is one of the most righteous men of the Bible. 
In his letter to the Romans, Paul tells us something about righteousness. In chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. What's the lesson? Hear the gospel message, believe it, and then live in the faith that it's true. That is righteousness. Later, in Romans 3, he writes, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. What's the lesson here? Righteousness does not come from following the law, but from faith and from following Jesus Christ. This was also the point of the passage from chapter eight that Sharon read for us this morning. But what else does Paul say in verse 21? The law and the prophets bear witness to it. To what? To the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Did you get that? The Old Testament bears witness to Jesus. Let me repeat. The Old Testament bears witness to Jesus. Want more proof? How about the words of Jesus himself? Go to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24. Jesus has been crucified and placed in the tomb by Joseph and Nicodemus. On the third day, some of his followers find the stone rolled aside and the tomb is empty. Most of the disciples don't believe him. Why is that? Because they're women. Go figure. So Peter goes and checks. And indeed, yes, the tomb was empty after all. That same day, a couple of Jesus followers are on the road to a little town called Emmaus, which is about seven miles from Jerusalem. They're bewildered. They're trying to make sense of what happened to their beloved friend, Jesus. Jesus, who was supposed to be the conquering hero. Jesus, the Messiah, who was supposed to free Israel from the tyranny of Rome. Jesus, who was killed and buried and whose body was now missing. Lo and behold, Jesus himself walks right up alongside them and starts a conversation, but they don't recognize him. After some back and forth, Jesus says, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now I'd like to go back to Matthew 5, 17. Last time, I promise. 
Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Why did Jesus have such respect for the law and the prophets, or what we call the Old Testament today? Because it's all about him. What did he mean by coming to fulfill them? To finally make them what they were meant to be. No wonder he didn't come to abolish them. So finally, in summary, I think there are two big takeaways from this passage in Matthew. Point number one, read and study the whole Bible. Jesus did, and we should follow his example. I know it's daunting sometimes, but it's worth it. When you first start reading the Bible, your eyelids may get pretty heavy when you get to Leviticus and Deuteronomy, where most of the 613 Old Testament commandments are given to the people of Israel. Once I started to really understand that our Bible, the 39 books in the Old Testament, 27 books in the New Testament, is really just one story, not 66 different stories, it really helped to make the Old Testament come alive for me. The Old Testament is full of hints about what the New Testament is going to tell us later. And intentionally searching for those nuggets makes it really satisfying when you find them because they point to Jesus. Point number two, we cannot work our own way to righteousness. The scribes and Pharisees worked a lot harder at it than most of us do, but they fell short. Following thousands of regulations to the letter will not get us into heaven. Not back then and not today. Public displays of so-called righteousness will not bring us closer to God. God wants more than that from us, much more. He wants us to be righteous on the inside, not just on the outside. We already know that we can't comply with every letter of the law, but we can sincerely want to be in God's will. That's what we should be striving for. Jesus did the work for us when he took the punishment that we deserve for all of our disobedience. This is spelled out in 2 Corinthians 5.21 and in the song Jesus Messiah that we often sing here. He became sin who knew no sin that we might become his righteousness. We can only accept his gift in all humility, choose to follow him and live in the faith that his grace is sufficient. Before I close, I'd like to go back to the idea in Ecclesiastes that there's nothing new under the sun and also drive home the point about the Old Testament pointing towards Jesus in many, many ways. About a thousand years before Jesus came to earth, there was a man named David. He was a great king of Israel. I personally tend to like David because he was a soldier before he was a king. Twice in scripture, in the book of 1 Samuel, and in the book of Acts, David is called a man after God's own heart. He really must have been a good guy, right? Well, not always, it turns out. 
as most of you know, good old David had an adulterous affair with his friend's wife named Bathsheba. Then he had his own friend killed so that he could have her for his own. Remember in the Ten Commandments that God tells us murder is wrong? Check. How about adultery? Check. David is undoubtedly guilty of what most of us would consider two very grievous, horrible sins. How in the world is he a man after God's own heart? To me, the answer lies in the book of Psalms. It's a collection of songs written to the Lord. Psalm 51 is one that was written by David himself after he was confronted by the prophet Nathan for his misdeeds. I won't quote the whole song, but I will go into a condensed version. And just one of those God things, the last song that uh, the worship team sang, sang for us before the announcements is actually pulled from Psalm 51. So here's a longer version of that, but imagine Melissa singing instead of me droning on. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O Lord, you will not despise. But David clearly knows that what he has done is very wrong because of the law of Moses, and he confesses it to God. He knows that he needs a new, clean heart, and he knows that only God can give him that. He knows that with the help of the Holy Spirit, he can teach others to love the Lord as he himself does. Lastly, David understands that even though the law of Moses called for animal sacrifices to atone for sin, it's not what God is really asking for. God wants us to come to him with a broken spirit and a broken heart and ask for his forgiveness. This, I believe, shows us why David was a man after God's own heart. In other words, a righteous man. So what was the purpose of the law? To teach us right from wrong and to show us that we need a savior. Paul tells us in Romans 3.20 that through the law comes knowledge of sin. 
And how are we to have righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees? Simply by accepting the love of the Lord into our hearts. Not by doing the right things, not by saying the right things. We can never outscribe the scribes or out-Pharisee the Pharisees. They knew scripture inside out. What they really needed to do was look up from their books, see Jesus, and follow him. Brothers and sisters, if you're feeling a tug at your heart or hear a whisper in your ear, and you'd like to know more about the grace of Jesus, I strongly encourage you to reach out to one of the leaders here today to learn more. So now, as Melissa and the worship team come back up, would you please join me in prayer? Father, you say in uh, Romans 15:4 that for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Lord, I thank you that you gave me the opportunity to try to make sense of a, what is sometimes a pretty difficult passage. I pray, Lord, that I did it justice, that people heard what you wanted them to hear, even if it was not what I wanted to say. Lord, please watch over all who are here and bring them all to you. I pray this in your name. Amen.